Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features a fireside chat with Dr. Timothy Eberlein about his career and life lessons. Dr. Eberlein is the director of the Alvin J. Seitman Cancer Center, Olin Distinguished Professor and Senior Associate Dean of the Cancer Programs at Barnes Jewish Hospital and the University of Washington Medical Center in St. Louis, and Chair of the ACS Board of Regents. The host is Dr. Mohsen Shabahan for the ACS Academy of Master Surgeon Educators. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Tim, we had the, um, I had the pleasure of talking to you uh, two days ago, a little bit of preparation for this. And, and we t- talked about, we're going to try to, over the next, uh, uh, what is it, about 55 minutes, we're going to try to cover the whole spectrum of your career, which is a hard thing to do, but uh, really with, with an eye towards um, the lessons that you've learned that you would like to convey uh, to everyone, uh, all of our participants and future viewers of this program. Um, I wanted to start with your entry into medicine. Uh, you talked about being a first-generation uh, uh, college uh, college student from your family, and, and uh, just the story was so compelling, and I was wondering if you would be willing to share that with, uh, with the participants. Sure. Thanks again, Mo. It's great to be here. Uh, it, yeah, I, I grew up on the other side of the tracks as it were. And uh, my parents were very supportive of me uh, wanting to go to college. And uh, so I was uh, about halfway through college between my sophomore and junior year of college. And Western Pennsylvania at that time, as you might remember, was in an economic freefall. People were being laid off from the steel mills, factories were closing, et cetera, et cetera. And so Getting a summer job was nearly impossible. And uh, if I didn't have a summer job, I would not be able to return to college. And uh, so I, I had a brother who was a, a homicide detective in Washington, D.C. And suggested that I apply to the VA hospital to see if I could get a job. And the job I was given was to sterilize OR instruments for the operating room. And it was about three floors underground, no windows. Uh, but the supervisor sort of took me under her wing. And at the end of the summer, she told me that the Georgetown medical students were going home for the summer and asked if I would be interested in scrubbing in the operating room to hold a retractor. I'm obviously dating myself. Uh, And I thought, boy, that sounded pretty neat. And she assured me that I would actually get to meet some real live surgeons and live patients. And that sort of seemed intriguing to me. So my first day was spent in orientation, learning how to scrub, et cetera. 
And the next day I happened to walk in, the case was an aorta bifemoral bypass. And about halfway through that case, I said, gee, that's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And so I just knew about it. And so, um, so here's your entry into, 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 into uh, medicine. And you then went to University of Pittsburgh, um, both undergrad and, and medical school. You talked a little bit about your foray into the research world and 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 um, where that took you. Um, uh, and we talked a little bit about the different uh, forks in the road and people uh, and 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 opportunities that came uh, from unexpected places. Um, uh, what were some of these opportunities and these forks in the road? Well, you know, it's it's sort of interesting. Uh, you know, as as Yogi Berra, another St. Louisan, uh, used to say, when you get to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I I you know there were many things that happened to me, and I suspect to you and and many of the listeners here on on the evening that happened to you not because you made some preparation and, you know, evaluated the pros and cons and et cetera, but circumstances just intervened. And one of those was a, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to graduate undergraduate with departmental honors, but I was in a department of biology. And by that time I was very committed to going to medical school. And so all of the faculty, in the Department of Biology refused to let me do a thesis with any one of them and suggested I find somebody in the medical school. And the only person that I knew was an individual who was very famous, but somewhat of a curmudgeon. And uh, I must have made 150 phone calls to his office to try to, you know, ask if he would have an undergraduate uh, work with him. And eventually he, you know, picked up the phone on the 151st phone call and said he didn't have time to work with undergraduates and quit bothering my secretary <laughs> and slammed the phone down. Uh, and so I, I took an opportunity. I, I happened to be the president of a pre-med honorary fraternity and the advisor happened to be Larry Terry. And, uh, and so I didn't know Dr. Carey. As it turned out, he was the vice chair of the Department of Surgery. And I actually went up to him naively to say, well, could you intervene with this curmudgeon-y uh, surgeon and, and uh, uh, ask if I could work with him? And Larry's response was, well, why would you want to work with him? Why don't you come work with me? So again, it was an opportunistic end result that uh, uh, actually I worked the rest of my undergraduate and all through medical school, all the summers, all my electives uh, throughout uh, medical school. And I had a number of publications. I learned a lot of surgical technique, et cetera, et cetera. So that Again, you know, the, these were opportunities partly made possible by just being persistent and not accepting no as an answer. 
As you, um, so then you went on to doing your residency at the Harvard system and did some research at the NCI. Um, anything that stood out in those years, any, any major lessons learned or anything that stood out? Obviously, I'm sure a lot, but. Well, I, I, I've always been a student of others. You know, I think you can learn from all the people you come in contact with. Frankly, sometimes you can learn, well, gee, I don't think I would ever say that or do that. Uh, but most of the time, you just learn by observing and watching people and studying them and see how they interact with patients, see how they uh, do operations, uh, you learn how they take care of patients. And, and, you know, you, you can learn an awful lot in between books and papers and, and research and other kinds of things. Uh, I learned a lot from a mentor, Steve Rosenberg, running a laboratory. And uh, I learned from Murray Brennan, who, you know, was also one of the senior surgeons there and, and uh, became very, very close to Murray and still am. And so, uh, but, but you can just learn from watching them, how they, how they interact with people, uh, what they do, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's really an important lesson for all of us as you go through your life and your career. As you think back at, um, you know, at that time, did you, you obviously went on to have a distinguished academic career. Was that in your plans? Were you thinking, I'm going to go have it, I'm, I'm going to work on an academic career? Or did that, did pieces kind of fall into place? Well, you know, again, it was, it was a little bit the naivete, Mo. It, it, you know, I, I uh, again, I had a, a, an astounding mentor in Hank Bonson, who was the chair of the Department of Surgery at the time I was in medical school. To me, Dr. Bonson was one of these giants in American surgery. He's president of the American Surgical, he's president of the American College of Surgeons, et cetera. And he was probably the best technical surgeon I think I have personally assisted in surgery and uh, a very thoughtful individual. And I just said, wow, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be the chairman, just like Dr. Bonson. <laughs> did I know what a chair of surgery did? Not at all. <laughs> I see. You know, but it was something that, you know, kept, you know, was a goal. And, and so I just was thinking, okay, well, if I want to be a chair of a department of surgery, uh, what would I have to do to get to that kind of a position? And, and so it was very helpful to establish a goal, recognizing that maybe I'd change my mind. But if I had this goal, then I would ask myself the question, well, what would it take for me to get to that goal? And, you know, then it makes it a little bit easier because, you, you OK, well, look, I mean, if you want to be the chair of an academic department, well, you have to have certain credentials. You can't just raise your hand and say, oh, yeah, I think I'll, I'll succeed Dr. Bonson. How about that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know and, and so, well, how did Dr. Bonson get to his job? 
you know, how did Dr. Moore get to his job at the Brigham, et cetera, et cetera. And so it became pretty obvious, okay, well, you're going to have to establish these kinds of criteria if you want to be a chair of a department. And so then you work your way back and say, okay, well, then I better plan to do X or I better plan to do Y. And I thought that was very, very helpful in, uh, you know, I, I always say to, you know, young faculty to trainees, close your eyes and where do you want to be in 10 years? And I don't mean geographically, but what do you want, what do you want to do in 10 years? And, and, you know, you say, well, gee, I want to be a minimal invasive surgeon, or I want to be the busiest pancreatic surgeon, you know, in New York or whatever. Well, then how do you get there? You have to think about, okay, well, I have to learn how to do pancreatic surgery and I have to learn how to, you know, be able to care for those kinds of patients and their potential complications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it becomes much more easy than for you to, you know, figure out the steps that you're going to get to make that goal. As you think about the academic um, career and in, in whether, you know, when you started versus today, as it, as our viewers may ask, you know, what would you advise someone who wants to have an academic career in surgery today? Um, what would your advice be and how would it be different from 20 years ago? Oh, in many ways, it, 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 isn't, uh, it, it isn't that different. Um, some ways, you know, you, you have to be, uh, I say, a little bit schizophrenic. And why do I say that? Because if you want to do academics, well, you have to pick some area where you become expert. In my personal case, it was basic tumor immunology. <laughs> And, and, but on the other hand, you've spent all this time training clinically to do, in my case, cancer surgery. And, and so, you know, I very uh, purposefully decided that I wanted to be expert in both those realms. And, and, and so that teaches you how to do time management because, you know, grant deadlines are going to occur whether, you know, you're having a big case schedule or not, or patient has a complication, doesn't matter that your grant is due the next morning. I mean, you still got to deal with it. And so it taught me time management. It taught me, you know, to do things right away. And I still do that. Somebody needs a letter of recommendation. It's probably done by the end of the day. So no procrastination. And, and the reason is tomorrow, I'll probably get three more requests for a letter of recommendation. Do you see what I mean? Yes. And so it just taught me how to manage my time. And the other thing I used to say to people is, well, learn how to use people. And I mean that in a very positive way. I don't mean that in a negative way. Uh, but, you know, we're all surrounded by very smart, very talented people. 
Learn how to use your assistant. Learn how to use your colleagues. Learn how to learn from each of those individuals. Learn how to, you know, the people who are more experienced than you. Uh, so that you can prevent a complicated, well, gee, Mo, how is it that you do Whipple surgery? And geez, you almost never get a pancreatic leak. How is that? What, what, what do you do? And, you know, uh, you can learn from people around you and use them to help you in your career. As you think about um, your career as a clinician, um, what have you seen? Obviously, there's been a lot of evolutions in cancer surgery and cancer care. Um, what are some of the things that stand out to you in the clinical realm throughout your career? Well, most constant, you know, the old adage, most constant thing that has happened is change. <laughs> And if you think about it, uh, you know, both in cancer as well as in clinical surgery, look what has happened. You know, when I graduated from my chief residency, uh, invasive surgery had not been perfected. Endovascular surgery was a dream. Robots didn't exist. Uh, Immune therapies were, you know, we that, that was like Star Wars. We didn't think that that would happen for generations. And here we are a couple of decades later, and we have all those technologies. We have uh, ways of uh, following patients with an electronic medical record. We have immune therapies, we have vaccine, personalized vaccines for patients, uh, CAR T cells, NK cell therapies, et cetera. Those were, those were dreams when I was first in the lab in Boston. And so literally in, in my professional career, not because of me, but, but drawing my professional career, there's been this enormous change. And I think it's only going to accelerate. Now, I find that very stimulating. I find that's, that's the reason I wanted to be a surgeon and an academic surgeon and a surgeon that, you know, did basic science because those fields are constantly changing. And as you, um, while you were in your, in the prime of the clinical career, um, did you always accept the changes well, or did you resist some changes that in retrospect you may look at and say, well, you know, either I was really right on that or I was, maybe I should have been more flexible. I think one of the things that helped me accept change, and, you know, uh, I'm a scientist, and, and so I look at data. So yeah, I, I wasn't doing change just because it happened to be a new fad. Uh, if you think about science, you know, you could design the perfect experiment and you think, boy, I am gonna have the scientific answer. And tomorrow morning, I'm gonna analyze my experiment because it was the perfect experiment. And you look at the data, and you say, wait a minute, did I mislabel the tubes? Did I, did, you know, 
Did I get it backwards? And so then you have to adapt and change your hypothesis. And so that kind of training sort of taught me to, okay, if we're going to do minimal invasive surgery, well, let's be cautious about it, but let's embrace it and embrace change. And uh, uh, that helps our patients. Let's see a hand raised that I don't know if we are going to be able to hear you or not, but please go ahead and if not, you can you can put your question in the Q and A. And I see there is a uh, there's a question as to do you still operate? And uh, again, uh, it's a something that I just personally uh, uh, decided that uh, you know I would stop operating at a certain time, and uh, before I had complications or before somebody whispered behind my back or in my ear that uh, it was time for me to step down. In my case, I, I actually had two roles. Uh, I was the chair of the Department of Surgery, but I also uh, founded the uh, now NCI-designated Cancer Center at, at WashU. And and so I continue as the director of the cancer center, but I stepped down as the chair of surgery and I quit operating. So okay, let's talk about, um, so you came to um, Washington University as chair of the department, am I correct, in 1998? That's, yes, correct. So, um, and you were chair for more than 20 years. Yeah, 24 and a half. <laughs> 24 and a half. <laughs> Lessons learned. What what were some of the what was some what what was some of the best advice you got as you embarked on that career and in the early part of that career? Remember, you know, I, I went around to many of the mentors that I established. And you know, I think that's again advice I would give to uh, younger listeners and trainees. It, yes, we all have a mentor who's a more senior person. You know, gee, you hire me as your junior faculty member. Well, by definition, you're going to become a mentor to me. Uh, but I'm talking about, you know, in my case, they were cancer surgeons. And they were spread all over the, the United States. And I learned from each of those individuals and I got to know them over the course of, you know, years as I was training in Boston and then junior faculty, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they became not only good friends, but they were great advisors as to, okay, well, if somebody called me and asked me about a job, uh, well, what, you know, what did they think? about that particular institution or department or cancer center or what have you. And so uh, the unanimous uh, recommendation was, gee, WashU would be a great place. And, uh, you know, Dr. Wells had built a very strong academic program in some people's estimation, maybe the strongest academic program. And, uh, so I, I decided that I would come here for the new opportunity. And the dean that recruited me at the time, uh, you know, promised that there would be a cancer center. 
And in fact, he said, look, I've hired somebody, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, shortly after I started coming out to transition in the fall of 1997 to do the interviews for residency applications, et cetera, somebody came up and told me that the dean had fired the director of the cancer center. <laughs> it, it, it actually turns out it was actually a very sad story. It was uh, this person had uh, Alzheimer's and actually died a couple of years later, uh, had a very advanced Alzheimer's and would not show up to meetings or would not remember the agendas and so on. But prospectively, that wasn't appreciated as an organic problem. Yes. And so a month after I arrived at WashU, uh, the dean asked me if I would at least be an interim leader to try to get the cancer center built. And so that's how I ended up having both jobs then for the entire time I've been here. Throughout the 24 and a half years, um, what would you say, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting, the evolution of your leadership, what would you say were some of the main things that stuck with you, that evolved in you, and you learned as you went through these years? Well, again, uh, Mo, as I mentioned, you know, I, I had the privilege of being exposed to many leaders. You know, people like LaSalle LaFall uh, became a mentor and, and close friend. I used to admire Dr. LaFall was the best speaker I think I've ever been around. And I never saw him use a note. And he could give these wonderful, wonderful speeches, impassioned, smart, erudite, et cetera. Uh, Charles Balch, I mean, Sam Wells, who had a laboratory and obviously discovered the ret proto-oncogene. Uh, you know, Don Morton, who had a big clinical trial operation in melanoma. Uh, John Daly, who did, uh, you know, cancer surgery. And Murray Brennan, that I mentioned before. Uh, and Ted Copeland and, and uh, Kirby Bland. You know, all these individuals were from all over the country. And I got to know them very, very well. And I learned from each one of those individuals. Each one of them taught me something different. And in many ways, it's what I always say to our trainees. Well, you know, the advantage of coming to a program like WashU is you're going to learn from many people from many different diverse backgrounds. And then that's going to become the Tim Everline way of leadership or, you know, operating or what have you, because you're going to learn a little bit of each from this person or that person, and then you synthesize it and put it together. And that becomes your way of doing it. That's a great point. That's a great point. If I was going to just push a little bit and ask, what would you say if you had to summarize in, in five words, what would be the Tim Eberlein brand of leadership? Listen, collaborate, and hire people smarter than you. And as you think about, um, as you think about uh, the legacy you've left uh, 
both at, at nationally and at the, at the at Washington University. What would be some of the things you're most proud of? Oh, by far and away, uh, I'm most proud of the people uh, that you know I hired and mentored, and and that their accomplishments. And uh, you know, many of them, uh, in fact, most have been president of their specialty organizations, and uh, you know, many of them have made major contributions nationally and internationally. Uh, and again, you know, to me, uh, you know, I think if, if you want to be a chair of surgery in 2023, you, you know, somebody once said, well, you know, if you're the chair, you're, you're at the apex of the pyramid, right? And, you know, I mentioned how naive I was when I said, gee, Dr. Bonson was a great role model. So, gee, I want to be like Dr. Bonson. I want to be at the apex of the pyramid. But when I became the chair, I realized that the pyramid was upside down. How so? And, and what happens is if you're the chair, your job is to facilitate everybody else in the department. That was a learning experience for me. I, I didn't quite realize that. But, you know, my job is not to be the, have the biggest lab or have, do the most cases, et cetera. My job was to listen to each of the faculty and say, okay, well, Mo, what is it that you want in your career? And then my job was to help facilitate that and provide the resources and the connections and the mentoring, et cetera. And, and you know, so I, I'm, I'm really proud of the accomplishments of our faculty and our trainees and uh, what they're able to do and the things that they get to do, which is, you know, a wide range of things, clinical, academic research, you know, basic science, public health, health equity, education research, uh, you know, quality initiatives, et cetera, et cetera, which oftentimes blend in with all the things that are going on in the American College of Surgeons. You know, the quality programs, the education programs, uh, you know, the academy, uh, you know, and how we've really sort of taken leaders from around the world, literally, and, and got them to contribute to educational initiatives and mentoring initiatives and training initiatives that have really helped uh, younger surgeons develop their career to be more successful. So we have a question, thank you, Tim, and, and we have a question um, and a comment from Dr. Muyang saying, um, thank you for being an amazing mentor. It's been an honor to train under your leadership. Um, the question is, what advice can you share for a person mid-career who finds their growth being stalled by resource constraints and lack of mentorship? Well, you know, again, uh, on, a, on a short-term basis, I think you want to develop a panel of mentors. So not to be 
restricted to just the institution. Uh, in my case, my mentor, my closest mentor, the person that hired me in Boston, uh, died two years after I uh, joined the faculty. And, and so, you know, I, I had a sort of a crisis in mentors, uh, you know, and, and another individual who was in the division uh, became the chair of a competing institution. And so, you know, it, it, it sort of made me uh, go out and develop these mentors nationally around the country. And, and so uh, that would be one short-term thing. I think the, the more long-term issue is, uh, well, gee, if things aren't going to improve, do you need to think about a different venue? But I also caution people that you, you should never run from a job. You should always run to a job, in my opinion. And, and, and even though there's always a push and a pull, you know, you may have colleagues that you say, boy, you love where you are currently. And there's unknowns, you know, when you move into St. Louis, you know, what's going to happen, <laughs> you know. But, uh, but, you know, I think you want to, look at the excitement and the opportunities and uh, rather than just take a job, just to change a venue, et cetera, et cetera. And, and mentors can help you with that. And mentors can help you with, you know, the contacts, uh, you know, cause they, they know when jobs are coming open, et cetera, et cetera. And so those opportunities can uh, be very, very helpful to somebody in a mid career. Tim, as a chair, um, obviously, there's always uh, um, commentaries on education and support of education and, and the restrictions, and, and obviously, resources are not unlimited. How did you um, support education, and what would your advice be to chairs today as to what they should do to support the educational mission? What I learned pretty early in my role as a chair is you have to have a very, very strong clinical program. And why? Because an education program is a cost center. And a research program is a cost center. And a diversity program is a cost center. And a health equity program is a cost center. And a quality program is a cost center. So how do you support those things? You have to support them by, you know, having enough revenue from, you know, clinical operations, from philanthropy, from cobbling together other resources, et cetera, to be able to support the mission of those programs. Uh, early on, uh, I heard Mary Klingensmith, who many of you on this call know, and, and Mary Mary, you know, helped us transform the educational program at WashU. And uh, she was a fabulous leader. And again, a great example of, you know, hiring somebody smarter than you with passion in education, providing resources, providing support, providing, you know, getting rid of uh, obstacles in her path. And gee, we've developed all kinds of innovative programs at WashU. 
And uh, so it was, it was a real privilege. So uh, th that's what I, I think you, you want to, you know, support others, help them grow, understand what it is that motivates them, et cetera, et cetera. And looking at part, the part of your career, as Dr. Saichiba mentioned, um, you lead the Board of Regents in, in the American College. Um, how about your career at the American College? Um, what have been some of the highlights? What has that meant to you? Well, um, you know, it's interesting. I, early on in my, my career, one of the things that I uh, got involved in early was the American College of Surgeons, back in those days, uh, the Committee on Research and Education. It's now morphed and grown, et cetera, et cetera. There is no such thing anymore. But, uh, and, you know, I got to meet and be mentored by Olga Jonasson. Uh, and I learned a lot about research. I learned a lot about education. I uh, helped establish the clinical trials course. It was nationally held, and, and uh, Dr. Jonasson and I uh, did that. And and so you know you again you expand your horizon of individuals that you know and you can learn from. And the American College of Surgeons did that. And and simultaneous, I was working in a lab, I was uh, producing science, and many of my mentees and many of the fellows in the lab. Uh, came to uh, the American College of Surgeons Surgical Forum, and all of a sudden I became involved in that. And, and, and one thing led to another thing, uh, you know, uh, and uh, next thing I knew, I became a governor, and I, I learned different things in different aspects of the American College of Surgeons. And then uh, uh, that led to the Board of Regents, et cetera. So, you know, again, uh, you know, keep an open mind and and learn from each of the steps that individuals that you come in contact with, I think, is a great way to expand your horizons. Tim, it's interesting because you've talked a lot about mentorship and you've talked a lot about opportunities that have come your way. You know, obviously in 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 a lot of lot of advice that's given. Um, especially today, is it sort of surrounds the uh, concept of um, you know drawing boundaries and having boundaries, um, and and then you know there's the concept of being flexible and open to opportunities. What would your advice be to a younger surgeon um, as far as how do you balance the advice about boundaries and the advice about jumping at opportunities and saying yes? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll use myself as an example, because I, I always like to, when people ask the kind, that kind of a question, I, I always try to relate it back to something that happened to me. Because it's very easy for somebody to look at a person like me who was the chair of a department or is the director of a cancer center to say, oh, well, gee, you probably never had any of these kinds of hurdles, but look what I'm going through. And, and you know, my first year of faculty, 
I joined Harvard Community Health Plan, which was an HMO in Boston. I started rounding at the VA, uh, worked at the Dana-Farber, and my referrals to me personally were to put in lines, Hickman lines and Roviac catheters, et cetera, et cetera, in cancer patients. And, and I struggled with the lab and, you know, all these commitments because I was driving all over Boston, et cetera. And one night in the middle of the night, I was asked to drain a perinicium. And at that time, Harvard Community Health Plan had their own emergency room. And I went to the nurse and said, well, geez, where do I get a wound kit? And she said, well, you have to walk down the hall and it's a second door on the left. There's a, you know, rack in there. There's all kinds of kits. Pick whatever one you want. And I'm, well, where do I get the beta done? Well, you have to go down this hallway. It's a, you know, you see, you understand what I mean. And, and all of a sudden it hit me that here I am in the middle of the night draining this perinicia, which was not cancer, was not what I was trying to focus on. And so the next day I went in and talked to the chair of the department and I resigned my position at the VA, my positions at Harvard Community Health Plan, and I focused 100% on my lab and my cancer patients. And, and guess what? Simultaneously, my lab research started taking off and et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, use that many times because we're all asked to, you know, well, gee, could you see this patient? Oh, Mo, gee, I, I've got this patient on the pancreatic mass. And, and you say, well, but today's my lab day. And well, but I got this patient, you know, she's going to need a Whipple. And, you know, so you have to learn how to use your time and you have to learn how to manage things. And, uh, and so, you know, that's, that's how I learned to focus what were the most important things for my career? Again, I, you know, there was no mentor that told me that. I just sort of figured that out that, gee, this was not working. Me driving to Braintree in Boston, for those of you who are in the Boston suburbs, uh, I loved working with those patients, but boy, it was just, it was a killer, the logistics. And so, uh, you know, work from there. And so I think you have to think of well, what, what is most important for you? What's going to make you most satisfied and excited to go to work in the morning? And then you better focus on those things and, and, and exclude all these extraneous things. The other thing I also give advice to people, you know, in my career, it, it's hard to figure this out, but I was very strategic about what I did in organizations. You know, a lot of people join many organizations. I'm in many, many organizations in cancer and in surgery, et cetera. But I was very strategic in the ones that I invested effort and tried to balance that so that 
I wasn't overcommitted and that if I made a commitment that I was going to be on the program committee for the Society of Surgical Oncology, which at the time we dramatically changed the way the program was done, uh, was going to put in the time and the effort to do a really good job. And of course, that led to me being an officer and eventually the president. And so, uh, you know, on the other hand, I've had faculty who've come to me and said, well, I'm on the website development committee of such and such an organization. And I said, well, that I'm sure that'll be really appreciated by the organization, but that's not going to get you anywhere. So, you know, if, if you're having time constraints, designing somebody's website is probably just going to be another big time sink for you. And so again, it's a a learning lesson to figure out, okay, what are the things that are going to help further my career and help me to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish versus just, boy, I'm in all these organizations and I'm on two or three committees and half the time I don't show up and when I do show up, I'm I'm late or I'm not engaged or I'm too busy because I'm overextended. So again, focus and 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 follow through. And, and I hear intentionality and that that right. that that being intentional about about it. You had mentioned as we were talking um, two days ago. You mentioned uh, persistence, passion, plan, perspiration. Um, would you elaborate uh, on that for uh, for our uh, um, audience? Well, actually, I I say there's there's five P's to leadership. <laughs> you know, most of us have passion. You know, I as I said, you know, I I knew the first operation I witnessed. Boy, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. And I have to say, I'm now at a stage in my career. Where I can look back and say, I've had the most blessed life in the world because I've gotten to take care of lots and lots of patients, et cetera. So passion, most of us have a lot of passion. But uh, as I mentioned before, got to have a plan. And the plan has to be, gee, what are you going to do in 10 years? And, you know, what's going to help me to get where I want to be in 10 years Versus, well, gee, I'm on the website design committee of this organization, and I'm on these other organizations that are sort of extraneous to surgery or to what my career goal is. Uh, the second, the third thing is you have to work hard, perspiration. You know, none of us got where we are without a lot of hard work, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I've written a lot of grants in my lifetime (laughs) and uh, and not all of them have been successful the first time around i wish to i wish i could tell you that that was not true but it is true and uh, i had to rewrite them etc etc and same with manuscripts and so on uh thing is uh persistence and again I've, i've i've alluded to that in many of the comments that Gee, yeah, you have to be persistent, you know, because a faculty member in the School of Medicine says, well, I'm not going to let an undergraduate work with me. Well, then you have to think of, okay, well, now what do I do? 
and and how do I solve this problem? And okay, so I met Larry Carey, and 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 the rest is history, as they say. Uh, and he became a phenomenal mentor. And I probably would not have gone to medical school, but for his support, I received the Academy of Medicine's scholarship. I received the last full ride scholarship to University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. I paid nothing for my entire medical school education. And if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't have gone to medical school. Yes. So, I mean, you know, again, uh, and the last thing is a partner. Mm. What do I mean by partner? Well, in my case, it's, you know, my wife. And yeah, in other cases, it may be someone else. Or it may be. It may not be a physical person. It may be something that you do to help you relax. You know, you may become a marathon runner, or you may exercise, or you may read, or you may climb mountains, or what have you. Uh, but you need something that's going to clear your mind. Uh, you know, I always say I, I love golfing. I'm not very good at golf, but uh, but boy, if I'm on the first whole tea box i can forget everything that's going on because i'm only thinking about hitting that little stupid white ball <laughs> that's on the tee you see what i mean yes and yes. And, and so for me it it clears my mind and and then when i'm done with a round of golf i can go back and um reinvigorate it and you know, I, I think having that partnership of something that you can do, in my case, as I say, it's it's my wife. And my wife is in public health, and she's had a professional career in public health, and now she's in the arts and uh, support of women and and race relations and many other things. And, and I've learned from that. Yes. And uh, it's been very, very helpful. And, and you know, uh, I'm, I, I meet all kinds of luminaries in the arts world because of my wife. And, you know, they, uh, it's well known. Oh, so you're Kim's husband. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> in, in the last few minutes we have left, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about um, your advice for, for the last phases of career. Uh, what would your advice be as far as when do you leave the game and how do you keep stimulated as you, how do you morph in, in the, in the, in the latter phases of one's career? Well, I think that's just as important as in the early phase when you say, okay, well, what do I want to do in 10 years? In my case, uh, early in my career, I was exposed to a couple of situations where very senior, very distinguished, world-renowned surgeons didn't know how to let go. And in a couple of cases, really had some disastrous outcomes. And that made a profound impact on me. And so I made the decision that, gee, that wasn't going to be me. And so that I would want to voluntarily step down at least when I perceived that I was in 
the height of my game so that I would avoid that kind of situation. But again, I made a plan. And the plan was that, gee, I'm going to continue on as the director of the cancer center. And in fact, we literally just applied for and received a merit extension. So our grant cycle will go from five to seven years. And, and so, you know, we're building a new ambulatory cancer building, 658,000 square feet, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm involved in many other things, but it isn't actively doing surgery, but I'm involved in all the education programs and I'm still involved in many of the things in the department of surgery, but no longer in a leadership role. So I, I feel that I, you know, I'm still actively engaged. I'm really excited to go to work. And, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, some people, their identity is they're operating and, and that's great. And most of them have been absolutely superb at it. But you, you need to be thinking of, okay, what, what do I want to do? You know, 10 years from now, because I may not be able to be as technically superb as I once was, even though I have great judgment and I have lots and lots of experience, but, but need to have a plan and then execute on that plan. Tim, it has been an absolute pleasure having this conversation, uh, an amazing, amazingly inspirational. Thank you so much for the honor of uh, having this conversation with you. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.